Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be able to come and to study the Bible. And Lord, you have shown us so many wonderful things that have given us joy in our hearts and helped us to see Jesus in a beautiful way. And Father, we're here because we want to see a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And Father, as we look at the topic of Revelation's lake of fire, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the good news that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would clear up the misunderstandings that surround this topic. Lord, give us the truth. Help us to know what the Bible clearly shares with us. And I pray that we would see it clear from your word and be drawn closer to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight's topic is Revelation's Lake of Fire. And this is almost a part two to the message that we looked at last night. Now, several of you were here last night. I think the majority of you were. And for those of you who were not here, we started studying together Revelation chapter 20, where we looked at Revelation's millennium, right? The thousand years that Revelation talks about. And we understood some powerful things about what's going to be surrounding the event of the second coming. And how does that help us to understand what's going to be taking place? And as we realize those events of the millennium and what surrounds the second coming, it also leads us to the point of understanding the topic of hell and the lake of fire more specifically. Now you say, how in the world does Revelation chapter 20 help us understand the position that the Bible talks about with hell? Notice with me, just turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and we don't have this verse on the screen, so you'll want to make sure that you follow along in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 20, and we're just going to pick up where we left off last night to introduce the topic, to show what we're looking at today. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 7, and notice what John says, and if anyone needs a Bible, we have some in the back if anyone needs to grab one, but Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. It says, now when the thousand years have expired, now we're going to do a little bit of backtracking and understand what that thousand years were in just a moment, but we're going to continue reading on. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And then what's the next thing that it says happened? And fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? Devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Now notice, skip down to verse 14. Verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the what? The second death. Now this is just understanding why it is that we're going into the topic of hell tonight. It's really the second part of understanding the millennium and the pieces that surround the events there. Now we already looked at last night a little bit about the events that come to the first part of the millennium, but we'll recap that. But specifically tonight, we're looking at what does the Bible say about hell and what's taking place after this millennium. Now, many of you know that there's a lot of confusion surrounding the idea of hell. How many of you have ever been to hell, Michigan? Anyone here? I I realized I think it was only 86 miles from my house today. I was actually shocked with how close it is. Now, we're not talking about that hell, right? 
Michigan is not hell on earth, but we realize that there's a different hell that the Bible is describing, right? Many states have hell, whatever it is. But what we're looking at is hell that's surrounding the events of the last days, and it's the place where the destruction of the wicked will be taking place. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have heard many different theories on hell? You know, some people believe that hell is a place, a hot spot in the center of the universe where Satan's there prodding people on this roaster and he gets to burn them for the ceaseless ages of eternity. Now, is that true? Is that what the Bible says? We're going to give it a fair shot. Is that what the Bible says? Now, if you go to the extreme other side of that idea, there's a preacher by the name of Ron Bell who just came out with a new book, and I forget the title of it, but they believe that there is no hell. God is so loving that there would never be a hell. He can't destroy anyone. Now, you realize that there's a little bit of confusion about the topic. Some people say it's not even a hell. Other people believe that you're in it for the, the ceaseless ages of eternity. And the question that we want to know is what does the Bible say about it, right? It doesn't matter what my theory is. It doesn't matter what anyone else's theory is, regardless of how respected they are and how sincere they are. The question is what does the Bible say about this topic? Now, to look at the topic, we're going to do it in a simple question-answer format because maybe if you guys are a little smarter than me, you realize that I can't really grasp a lot of things too easily, so I just have to ask a question and then we look in the Bible for an answer, right? And I, I hope that that helps us all in understanding these topics. But we're going to look at four questions that surround the issue of hell. Now, question number one that we're going to be looking at is where is hell? Isn't that a good question? Is it really in the center of the universe? Where is hell taking place? The second question we're looking at is when is hell? Are there people there in hell burning right now? Are there people being roasted? Have they been there for thousands of years? Think of Cain, the first murderer. Has he been in hell for 6,000 years now? What does the Bible say? Now, number three is how long is hell? Is there even a hell? Is it one that lasts through the ceaseless ages of eternity? Or is there a different understanding that the Bible gives us? Now, notice number four. Question number four is why is there a hell? So this is what we're looking at tonight. Where is hell? When is hell? How long is hell? And why is there a hell? So this is the topic of our study this evening that we're going to look at. And before we dive into it, we want to just take a quick survey of the land and understand a little bit about what the Bible talks about when it describes hell, just from understanding the words that it uses to use, uh, that we understand or that are translated into the English as hell. So Bear with me really quick. In the Old Testament, there's only one word in Hebrew that's used to describe hell. And that word is sheol. And hell or sheol literally just means the grave. Okay, we're, we're going to look at that. Now, in the New Testament, there's three different words that are used. One is Hades, which means the grave. It would be the equivalent to sheol. And then Gehenna, which is the valley of Hinnom which is describing a valley that you can read about. I believe it's in Isaiah where it talks about a trash heap that was burning and they would kinda, it was in the middle of the outside of the city and that's where the rubbish was. And then you see um, Tarartar, or Tartoro, sorry, and, which is an impenetrable darkness. And so this is the idea that it's so black, it's so dark. Now notice what you don't hear in these words. It doesn't say that hell's in the middle of the universe. It doesn't say that it's this hot spot that's dwelling there, but it's basically just an overview of what the language means when it describes the words that we see translated as hell today. Now, this is just background. We're not basing a theology off this. This is just helping us to understand the lay of the land before we get into it. 
But the first question that we are going to be looking at tonight is the question of where is hell? How many of you think that's a fair question to ask in looking at this topic tonight? Well, we realize that the understanding of hell is connected to the millennium, right? Because we find out about it in Revelation chapter 20. So before we get into specifically answering where is hell, we have some background that helps us to understand the answer to this question. And so let's review what we studied last night and understanding what leads up to the millennium and what leads up to the time where people are in hell. Now, this is the first one that we're going to look at, and we talked about this last night. That when the millennium takes place, we're looking at the things that surround Christ's second coming. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, that those who were believers in Jesus, where are they going? To heaven, right? Now, how many of you say, Lord, I want to be there, right? That's where we're going to be. We're going to be neighbors. I hope we share some land together. Maybe we can get to know each other a little bit more. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes, the believers are resurrected. And we've already looked at this passage of Scripture multiple times. But for reference, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And it says that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. So we see that when Jesus comes, the saints, or those who are ready and excited to meet Jesus, go to heaven with him. Now what happens after that? We saw this last night, that when we're going to heaven, that's the time that we receive immortality, right? We realize that the the idea of the immortal soul is nowhere in the Bible. The Bible tells us that the soul that sins, it shall surely die, right? The only one that possesses immortality, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, is God himself. But God longs to give us eternal life, but it's not something we possess on our own. Now, you can find the reference to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 54, where Paul talks about at the second coming, when the saints are going to meet God, that they are changed from corruptible to incorruptible. From mortal to immortality is what he tells us. And so we see that we receive immortality in the time where we're being translated to heaven, but not before then. That's when the gift of immortality is given. Now after this, we see that not only at the second coming are believers resurrected and are the believers receiving immortality, but also what happens to the wicked who are alive on the earth when Jesus comes back. You remember looking at that last night? Revelation chapter 6, verse 14 through 17 talks about those when Jesus was coming that they started to flee from the wrath of the Lamb, right? Remember reading about that. And they cried for the stones and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of the Lamb. We realize that there's two classes of people when Jesus comes. Those who are excited to meet Him and those who are pleading that they can do anything possible to be separated from Jesus. Now this is what we see the uh, events surrounding the second coming, that those who are righteous are in heaven, they've received immortality, but those who are wicked have, that were alive on the earth are dead and they're in the grave, right? The Bible teaches that when you die, you stay in the grave, right? Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 5 tells us that the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Right? And it says asleep. That's what Jesus tells us in John chapter 11. 
that there's not consciousness in death, but it's simply as a sleep. And that's what Bible writers over 50 times in the Old and New Testament refer to death as. So we see that when these wicked people go into the grave, that they're simply sleeping and resting there. And what are they waiting for? Well, the Bible tells us that they're waiting for the second resurrection. And that's what we started looking at a little bit last night, and we'll look at it a little more in detail tonight. Now, notice Jeremiah. This is just a little more of a recap of what the condition of the earth is during this thousand years, right? We realize that there's no one alive on earth. There's all the righteous are in heaven, and all of the wicked are in the grave, right? Isn't that what we found out last night in the millennium? That there's no one on the earth except for Satan and his angels, and he's bound here for a thousand years to remember the consequences of sin. Now, notice what happens in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 33, how it describes this day. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Now, we ask the question, why is it that they're strung all over the, the, the earth and no one buries them? Well, it's simply because who's around? The righteous are in heaven, and the wicked are in the grave, or they're there on the earth, just well when there to bury them. And we realize that the earth is left desolate, and the same term is used for the desolation there as is described in Genesis chapter 1, when the earth is without form and void. That's what that idea of the bottomless pit is, or the abyss, is that it has no form or it's void. Now, just to continue on this recap, we realize that the dead are dead there on the earth, but the question is, what happens to the wicked dead? Is that it? Well, the Bible tells us, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of what? Life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Condemnation. Now, how many resurrections does Jesus talk about? One or two? Two, right? The resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. We realize that the resurrection of life takes place at the second coming of Jesus, and this is where the righteous are caught up to heaven to be with God. Now, when does the, right, when does the resurrection of condemnation take place? Notice what Revelation chapter 20 and verse 5 says. It says, but the rest of the dead did not do what? did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Now, if they didn't live again until the thousand years were finished, that means after the thousand years, they're what? Living again, right? And how are they living again? They can't give life to themselves. No human has the power to resurrect themselves. But we realize that this is what the Bible talks about as the second resurrection. And this is the resurrection we don't want to be in. This is the resurrection of only the wicked. Now the question was asked, do these people have a chance to repent? Is it possible? No, we realize that Jesus tells us when he comes the second time, when he comes to the earth and he returns, that he tells us that his reward is with him, right? Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. Now if someone's reward is with you, that already means that their mind has been made up on what side they're on, right? And we realize that when Jesus comes back the second time, he gives the reward of everlasting life to those who believe in him, just like John 3.16 tells us that he would. But we realize that he also gives the reward of condemnation 
to those who had rejected him and saying, hey, if you don't want to be with me, I'm not going to force you, but I'm going to allow you to live a life separate from me. And these are the people who are being raised at the second resurrection. Does this make sense? This is a recap for those of you who are not here. So a big overview of what we just looked at. The believers are resurrected. The believers receive immortality at the second coming. The wicked living are consumed, and the wicked dead remain in the grave or strung all over the earth, right? This is what the Bible is telling us. But notice what it also says. The believers ascend to heaven with Christ, right? The, resurrect, or the, the resurrection and also the second coming of Jesus wouldn't be exciting if Jesus just came and said, hi, how are you guys doing? And then took back off, right? That's not what he says. Jesus says that he's coming so that he can receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we may be also. And this is what takes place at the beginning of the thousand-year period of the millennium. Jesus comes to bring us home with him. Now, this is just a picture to be able to place it in our mind, the events we've just talked about. We have the first resurrection and the second coming at the beginning of the thousand years. And this is where the wicked who are alive are slain, and also the wicked who are in the grave stay in the grave. Now, at the end of the thousand years, we realize that this is where the second resurrection takes place, and this is the resurrection of the wicked who rise on the earth, and the Bible tells us that Satan is loosed for a short time to deceive those wicked people, and we looked at last night, what is he trying to deceive them to do? Well, it was to overcome that city that had come down, just like Revelation chapter 21 tells us, that the new Jerusalem had come down, and Satan comes up to attack the camp of the saints, and where are the saints? They are in heaven with God. Now notice, we're going to read this verse, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9. Speaking of right where we've just left off on the time frame, Satan was just loosed and he went out to deceive the nations. That's what Genesis, or sorry, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 8 tells us. And after he deceives the nations, notice what it says they're doing. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of where? Heaven. And did what? Devoured them. Now this is exactly what we see taking place. And this helps us to understand where is the final destruction of hellfire going to be taking place? Does the Bible say that the, the saints were camping in the center of the earth? Did the Bible say that they were? Where does it say that they were? Notice what the slide says. It says that they were where? And they went up on the breadth of the earth. Now, if you looked at a translation, and more of a modern translation, the ESV translates it, the broad plain of the earth. In other words, they're on the surface of the earth, right? When Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to find the people who are hidden in the crevices of the earth, but he's finding us who live on the earth. And Jesus, when he comes back the second time, even when the new Jerusalem descends, it descends on the earth, and we see as the wicked are coming to attack the saints, that's when the fire of God, which we know as the lake of fire or hellfire, comes and descends upon the wicked people. You see that hell isn't something that the Bible says takes place in the hot spot in the center of the earth, but hell actually takes place on earth. Now, there's some people who say, well, I feel like every day on earth is hell, right? That's not what we're talking about, right? That's not the idea. We realize that this is reserved for the final punishment when all of the world is there and when the final decisions have been made and they go up to take the city of God, that's when hell becomes 
and it, the fires of hell come to consume the wicked people. Now, does this make sense? Where is hell? Just from a clear reading of Scripture, from Revelation chapter 20, hell takes place on the earth. Well, then the next question is, is when is hell? Let me just ask you a question. If hell takes place on the earth by consuming fire, in other words, it's a visible thing, it's not hidden in the center of the earth, if hell was going on right now, do you think you would see it? Just, just observation, right? But we want to know, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say that the wicked are in hell right now? Are there people who are being tormented for the sins and crimes that they've done right now? Is that what the Bible tells us? Because there's many people who believe that this is what's taking place, but we want to let the Bible tell us what's really happening. Now, notice what happens. We're going to go ahead and look at 2 Peter chapter 2 really quick. It's not on the screen, so I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles, just a couple books before Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. And we just want to get a little bit of an overview of when is hell, right? We've already seen where is hell. It's on the earth. But when is hell? 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. And notice the language that Paul uses to describe when hell will be. He says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to what? What is that next word? And to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of what? Of judgment. Okay, so there's this idea of this punishment is being reserved. Now, notice, is this the only spot that we find it? Turn with me just a couple, the next chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, and notice what he says. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. And we're coming in at the middle of a thought, but we'll still get the idea that we're looking for. Notice what it says. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Notice verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are what? What is that word? It's the same word we find. Are reserved for fire until the day of the judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, notice what it says. Once again, it confirms not only the idea that hell isn't taking place right now because it's reserved, but it also tells us that it's going to be happening on this earth, that the fire is reserved that God is going to be pouring out on this earth on the wicked people. Now, notice on the screen, Job chapter 21, verse 29. It says, do you know, do you not know, that the wicked is reserved to the what? Day of destruction. Now we've seen the word reserved three times here in connection with the final punishment of the wicked, which we know as hellfire. It says that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction. They shall be brought forth to the day of what? Of wrath. Now, the Bible writers in multiple places and multiple times say that the fires of hell are reserved. They're reserved. They're reserved until the day. Now, what day are they reserved 
killed. Now, we've already looked at this passage of Scripture that we're getting ready to go into before. On night number three, we're getting ready to look at Matthew chapter 13. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at the very words of Jesus where Jesus lays out the timeline of what's going to be happening in the last days and what is surrounding the events that lead up to hellfire. Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to begin in verse 30. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 30. Now, we know that Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and I'll refresh your mind of the parable here, that Jesus is talking to the disciples about when sin entered the world. Remember this story? That it talks about a sower goes out and sows good seed in his field, but then while men slept, what happens? The enemy comes and they sow tares. And then the angels come and they say, hey, didn't you sow good seed in your field? And Jesus says, I did. And they say, well, then why then are there tares? And he says, well, an enemy's done this. And then the, then the angels ask him, well, do you want us to go and remove them? And Jesus says, no, let them grow together, right? Unless by uprooting the tares, you pull out some of the weed as well. But notice that Jesus here gives us an understanding about what takes place in hellfire. Notice Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into what? My barn. Now this is the people we want to be in, right? The barn is symbolic of God's heavenly kingdom. But notice Jesus gives us a clear understanding of what he's talking about. We don't have to guess about the symbolic language. But notice verse 40. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire... So it shall be in the what? The end of the age or in the end of this world. You see, Jesus says, when is hell going to take place? When are the fires of hell going to consume and destroy the unrighteous? Well, it's not taking place now, but throughout the scriptures we see it's reserved, it's reserved, it's reserved. And Jesus plainly says, it's actually going to take place at the end of this world. Now, doesn't that make sense from what we studied in Revelation chapter 20? When we looked at the idea of what's taking place during the millennium, we see that Jesus comes back, His second coming. The righteous go to heaven, the wicked are dead, and we see that there's a thousand year period where we're in heaven checking the record, making sure that God's judgments are fair. And at the end of those thousand years, we see that the wicked are raised in the second resurrection, and according to the timeline of Revelation chapter 20, that after they're raised up and Satan is loosed for a short period of time to deceive those people, they come to attack the city and fire is brought down from heaven, right? According to the chronology of Revelation chapter 20, hell is not something taking a place now. According to the words of Jesus, it's not something taking place now. According to the words of Paul, according to the words of Job, it's not happening now, but it's something reserved until the end of the world. So we've looked where is hell, and we've seen that hell takes place on the face of the earth. We've also looked at the question, when is hell? And we realize that hell is not taking place right now. Now praise the Lord that that means that anyone that you might think they did not rest or fall asleep in Jesus, they didn't have a saving relationship with Jesus. I can think of people in my family who have died without the knowledge of God and almost in obstinance to God. And sometimes we wonder, are they burning in the, in the fires of hell right now? But we can know that God is not a God who's rash in making sure that they get thrown in the fire really quick, but He's reserving it till the day of final judgment. So praise the Lord. We know that people in the grave are not being tortured, but they're simply resting. 
Now, isn't that a beautiful, comforting thought to know that God is not torturing people now? Now, the next question that we're going to look at is how long is hell? Now, on the surface, many of us could give an answer just based on what we read in Revelation chapter 20, right? We read in Revelation chapter 20 that it talks about hell going on for a long period of time. And I want to use the language that John uses here in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says, The devil will deceive them, and he was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they were tormented, what? Day and night, forever and ever. Now you also see other passages in Scripture where it says everlasting punishment, right? Have you read those passages before? There's also other passages that say everlasting destruction. Now the question is, is is this what the Bible is telling us? Is it saying that hell is something that's going to take place throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity? Now before we get into this, I just want to ask a simple question that sticks out in my mind every time I think about this subject. Who is it that receives everlasting life? According to John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that, what? Whosoever believes in Him should not perish or die, but on the opposite, it says they will have everlasting life. In other words, the Bible says that God promises everlasting life to one group of people. And it's the righteous. Would you agree with that according to John chapter 3, verse 16? And many other places in Scripture. And we're going to look at those. So my question is, if God tells us that we're going to have everlasting life, only those who are righteous, how is it that the wicked can burn through the ceaseless ages of eternity having everlasting life, even though they're just in a more uncomfortable form of everlasting life? Isn't that what it would be? I mean, hell, if you were to live forever in hell, wouldn't you still have eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, whoever believes in me will have everlasting life in heaven, and those who don't believe in me will have everlasting life in hell. Notice that the Bible leads us to ask some questions about the timing of hell and what it is that takes place. And this is why we have to look at what happens. What does the Bible talk about? People burning in hell forever. Is this the only theme that we see in Scripture? Turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the book right before Matthew. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1. And we're going to see something interesting here. And it's going to help us understand the idea of how long is hell. Malachi chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. Now notice what it says. Talking about the great day of the Lord, and we realize that this is describing the destruction of the wicked, and you don't have to do any guesswork. It's very clear that it's talking about it. Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Notice what he says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a what? An oven. Now this is going to be a hot oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day of the Lord, and the day which is coming shall do what? What, is, what does your Bible say? Set on fire? What does anyone, anyone else, does it say burn them up? Is that what you're seeing? Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. And that day is coming that shall burn them up. That's exactly what it's saying in the Hebrew. In other words, there's this idea of them being consumed. How many of you have seen something burn up, but yet it still exists? 
Not really, right? If it's burned up, it's consumed. Now notice the language, it continues on. That will leave them neither root nor branch. I want to ask you, if there's a tree that doesn't have any roots and it doesn't have any branches, how much of a tree do you have left? None, right? Now, I'm not an agriculture specialist. I just I can simply observe a tree. But notice what it continues on to say. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. In other words, God has hope for those who are righteous. Amen? It's not just doom and gloom in the last days. God promises those who are right with him are going to be prosperous because we're going to be in his kingdom. But notice verse 3. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be, what's that next word? Ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you make a fire, at what point do you get ashes? If all there is is ashes left, do you have a fire anymore? Now, my family and I, and Ariel as well, she's my immediate family now. I'm still learning this. We've only been married almost two years. And we went camping in Colorado. When was it? Last year, about in the fall time. And when we went to sleep at night, we wanted to have some warmth, right? It got kind of cold in the mountains of Colorado. And so we decided to make a fire. Now, how how many of you have done this? Right before you go to bed in a campsite, you put a ton of wood on there because you don't want to rebuild the fire in the morning. Anyone? Now, how well does that usually work? Not very well unless you only sleep a couple hours, right? And we realized that even though we stocked all the wood on, there was a nice hot blazing fire. When we woke up in the morning, all there was was ashes. Now this is the idea that the Bible gives us when it talks about the destruction of the wicked. It doesn't say that you'll see a bunch of people roaming around on the earth in the fire. But it says simply that they will be turned into ashes and that they will be burned up. In other words, there's this idea that the people are actually going to die and not live forever in the flames of hell. Notice, this is just one passage of Scripture. We want to do justice to all that the Bible says. Notice what Psalm says. Psalm chapter 37. Psalm 37, we're going to get the words of David here. Psalm 37 and verse 9. The question is, how long is hell? Psalm 37 and verse 9. Psalm 37, verse 9, and notice what it says. For the evildoers shall be what? Destroyed or cut off. Now, when I was 16, I destroyed my first car. It it really didn't stand a chance, right, between that truck that I hit and then I spun around and hit another one. And I destroyed my car. How much was left to use. Now, if you go through Alma right now, we have the opportunity of seeing three storefronts that were just destroyed in fire, right? You know where I'm talking about, right there on the main drag into the city. And you realize that those storefronts were destroyed with fire. Are they still storefronts? No, they're a bunch of rubbish, and they're actually ashes that are just now that people walk over as they're cleaning things up, right? Now, this is the idea that we're getting of the wicked through Scripture. Now, notice it continues on. Psalm chapter 37 and verse 9, it says, But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Praise the Lord. Amen? God always gives hope in reminding us that we don't have to choose the path of destruction. But he continues on and he says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be what? 
the wicked shall exist in a different form of eternal life. Is that what he says? No, it says that the wicked shall be no more. They cease to exist. Now notice it continues on. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now, just like every other passage of Scripture, God is giving us the hope of eternal life. But we realize that God says something interesting about the wicked that are destroyed. The thing is that they're destroyed, right? It's not that they're living forever, but that they come to the point where the fire burns them up. It consumes them. Now, many of us are thinking, well, what about those passages that deal with everlasting fire? We're going to get to those, and we're going to do justice, right? We don't want to just build a theology on one portion of Scripture. We want to take all of it on the topic and see what clearly is the Bible talking about. Notice verse 20 of the same chapter. Psalm chapter 37 and verse 20. Notice what it says. But the wicked shall what? Perish. In other words, they die, right? They don't continue to live throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity in the fires of hell. It says, And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Now this is the fate of the wicked that the Bible tells us after being consumed in the fires of hell. Now, notice we're just going to try to process a couple more pieces of information that the Bible gives us concerning the final destruction of the wicked. Now, this is a passage that we don't often think about in connection with hell, or maybe we do, but it's a little bit different than naturally looked at, is Romans chapter 6, verse 23, right? This is a familiar passage to many of us. We've quoted it before in the meetings, and notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, it's interesting to see that Paul doesn't say the wages of sin is eternal life in the tormenting fires of hell throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. But he simply says the wages of sin is death. In other words, there's a final end. You cease to exist. You're you're not there anymore. You're burned up. You're consumed. This is the idea that we're getting from the Bible writers, right? Now, if the wages of sin, who was it in the very beginning that started to question if people would really die if they disobeyed God? Lucifer, right? Remember in the Garden of Eden, Lucifer asked the question when Eve says, well, I can't touch that tree. You know, God says whoever touches it or eats of it, you know, they'll surely die. But he says, you won't what? Surely die. Die. Now, we already looked at this on Saturday morning that, God, that Satan has already surrounded the topic of death with a lot of confusion. But why do you think that he would stop at the topic of death? Don't you think he would move on to hell? And around the topic of hell, Satan continues his idea that you won't die. In other words, you possess eternal life in yourselves, and when God tries to kill you and destroy sin, well, too bad, he's actually not able to because you're going to live through the ceaseless ages of eternity. Because God says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It doesn't say that we both have eternal life. Only the righteous have eternal life. Now notice this is John chapter 3 verse 16. We already looked at it together. And just re-emphasizing the point with your own eyeballs on the screen, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Once again, we see that everlasting life is only promised to the righteous, never to the wicked, and that those who go into the fires of hell are not promised an alternate eternal life throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, but simply they're going to cease to exist. 
Now, there's another question that arises as we read through Revelation chapter 20, as this has been the main focal point of our study and what's led us to this question on hell. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. Notice, notice what John says here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. And we just want to understand this idea clearly to make sure that we're not confusing Scripture. Because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And the question is, is there only one death that the wicked are to die? Notice what John says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13. Picking up in the middle of the idea, it says, The sea gave up their dead who were in it, and death and Hades were de- and delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of what? Fire. This is the second death. Now the Bible describes why would there be a second death? Well, there obviously has to be a first death, right? Now notice this idea here. The first death is one that not only the wicked will receive in some cases, but we see that the first death is simply just the result of sin, right? Would you believe this? Notice what it says on the screen here. The first death is the death that we each die as a natural result of living in a sinful world. For example, when Paul is talking about the the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now, he's talking about sleeping the sleep of death, right? Not just taking a nap. If if he said that we didn't need sleep, that would be a blessing, right? But he says, Behold, we shall not all sleep, but we all shall be what? Changed. In the moment in the twinkling of an eye when the trump comes, you know, it talks about the second coming taking place. But what he's saying is that you don't have to experience the first death in, in going to heaven. In other words, you might be alive when Jesus comes, right? But even if you do, that doesn't mean that you're one of the wicked. In other words, if someone falls asleep, they can fall asleep in Jesus, right? They can have the hope of the resurrection and of eternal life. And that doesn't mean that that's God's judgment of sin upon them, that they're experiencing eternal death. But notice that the Bible does talk about a second death. The first death is the one that we refer to when we see people who fall asleep in Jesus, just like the Bible writers describe it as. But the second death is an eternal death as the result of personal rebellion against God. Now, notice that's exactly in the timeline of what we studied in Revelation chapter 20, that those who had rebelled against God, the wicked, are raised to life, right? And as they go to conquer the city, the new Jerusalem, the camp of the saints, that's when the fires of hell come down and consume them. Now, how many times will those people have died? Twice, right? Once either at the brightness of the coming of the Lord or just by natural age or whatever else, being in the grave, and then they're resurrected, and that's when the final judgment of God is meted out for those who had lived a life separate from Him. Does that make sense, what the Bible is talking about with the second death? Now, if you have a question, make sure to write it in the question box, because we want to make sure to answer those questions and make sure that it's clear. But the Bible describes a second death that will take place. In other words, it's the death that He died or that we die as a result of sin. Now, I should have brought the verse with me, and I forgot to jot it down today, but I was reading it. I believe it's Hebrews 6, and don't quote me on that, and I know it's on recording, so now you have it perpetuated if I'm wrong. But Hebrews 6, I believe, talks about Christ dying once and for all, and it talks about Him dying the second death. In other words, when Christ was hanging on Calvary's cross, 
he didn't just die the first death, right? He didn't die because he was just crucified and he couldn't breathe. But it tells us that the weight of sin was upon him, right? This is why Jesus was struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus died, he died the second death or the death that was the punishment of God that we were supposed to take. And this is why we can go to heaven without ever experiencing the second death because Jesus has already faced it for us. Does that make sense? And if you have any more questions about that, let's make sure to look at it. Now, just in recapping what we've looked at and adding a couple more verses and understanding what is the fate of the wicked, do they really live throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity in hell, or what does the Bible say? Notice some of these passages of Scripture that we're going to put up here. It says that the wicked will die. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Now, Luke chapter 13, verse 3 says that the wicked will perish. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 says that the wicked will be burned up. Psalm chapter 37 verse 20 says that the wicked will be utterly consumed. Malachi chapter 4 verse 3 says that the wicked will be turned into ashes. Obadiah, there's only one chapter, verse 16 says that the wicked will be as though they had not been. Now that's, they cease to exist. They stop being there. It's as if they had never been here before. And notice Isaiah chapter 47 verse 14 says that Satan will be totally destroyed. Now many people have this idea that Satan is going to be in heaven and he's going to kind of be the ringleader of hell. Or sorry, not heaven. He's going to be the ringleader in hell. In other words, he's going to be there and he's going to be doing what he loves to do the most and that's roasting people and killing them and that he's going to be the one kind of in charge of hell. But is that what the Bible tells us? It says that Satan will be totally destroyed destroyed. In other words, he's not going to be living throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. And if he's not there, why would we think that the other wicked people who are just, they're quite a bit less wicked than Satan, why would we think that they would be there for the ceaseless ages of eternity? This isn't what scripture is showing us. Now the question is that we have to understand because we don't want to just close our eyes to verses that seem clear on the subject. It asks the question, what does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire? Now this might be the question that's in some of your minds is what is the Bible talking about when it mentions everlasting destruction or eternal fire? Does it mean destruction that's going to be happening throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity or what is it talking about? Notice a couple passages of scripture with me and we're just going to try to understand how the Bible uses the idea of eternal destruction. Now notice this one with me. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 it says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all having obtained an eternal what? Redemption. Now who is this talking about? Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one that can bring eternal redemption. Now I want to ask you a question. Because Jesus brought us eternal redemption, does that mean that he's continually redeeming us throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity? Well, no, he died once for all, right? And his redemption, it's the effects of the redemption are carried out throughout these ceaseless ages of eternity. Would you agree with that? Right? Jesus isn't there continually redeeming us throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity when we're not even experiencing sin anymore in heaven, but it's simply that we're enjoying the benefits that redemption has brought for an eternity. Would you agree with that? Now, notice how the Bible uses it, the, the idea of eternal judgment. Look at this one here. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. Of the doctrine of baptism, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of, what does it say? Eternal judgment. Now I want to ask you a question. The Bible says there's an eternal judgment. Does that mean that God is going to be judging people for all eternity? Or does that mean that the effects of the judgment will have their effect for all eternity? In other words, when we make up our mind, whether we're following Christ or we're rejecting Christ, is God constantly trying to figure out if we are to receive the judgment or the reward of the righteous or the wicked throughout eternity? No, that's already made up at the second coming, right? But we realize that the judgment of God has eternal effects. Now, notice as we look at this that the, an eternal fire is ones whose effects or results are eternal. Everlasting punishment is one punishment whose effects or results are everlasting. In other words, when God says that there's eternal fire, He doesn't mean that the fire is going to be coming down for all eternity, but there's going to be a fire that has effects that affect the world for all eternity, right? The righteous are, are in heaven, and the wicked are fully destroyed by the eternal fire. Now, notice we're just going to continue walking through this idea because we want to understand, are we doing justice to the Scripture? We don't want to twist anything to meet our own agenda. We want to understand what is the Bible teaching and how do we understand it today. Now, the Bible in giving us a clearer understanding reminds us of a story that helps us to understand the idea of eternal fire. Turn with me just one book back from Revelation to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is a very small book, and in the book of Jude, there's a discussion that helps us to be able to see this in a little clearer light than what we can without seeing this passage of Scripture. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, and verse 7, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice what he says, Jude chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example. What, what example? Suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. Well, if we have the understanding that eternal fire means that the fire is burning for all eternity, and Sodom and Gomorrah is our example of that, the question that we can know today if our understanding is right is, is Sodom and Gomorrah currently burning today? Now, I've heard some people say, well, there is this little, you know, bubbling that's happening in the Middle East, and we might think that that's connected to the fire. Well, that could be a little bit of a stretch. Why don't we go to the Bible and ask the Bible if Sodom and Gomorrah is continuing to burn today? Go to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. And we're looking at, is Sodom and Gomorrah burning. We want to understand from the Bible. We want to know what the Bible clearly says about this topic. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? Ashes. Condemned them to destruction and making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now there's two things that that tells us. That Sodom and Gomorrah was turned into ashes, and that it was destroyed. Now I want to ask you a question. 
As you drive by those storefronts in Alma, they are now turned into ashes. Are they still burning? No, you can't be ashes and burning at the same time, right? And so when we see the, the Bible writer is obviously not saying that Sodom and Gomorrah is still burning today. We don't even have evidence of that if we were to go over there and look for it. But what the Bible is saying is not that the fire that came down on Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be burning throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, but simply that the effect of that fire would be eternal. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah is no more. And those people are no more. The judgment of God is going to last for all eternity. In other words, he's not going to change his mind, but this is the final choice and decision and this is what takes place at the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Does that make sense? Eternal fire doesn't mean it burns eternally, but it simply means that its effects are eternal. Isn't that what we see in Scripture, right? I'm not making up my own opinion, but this is what the Bible says. And this is once again where we have the example of the campfire. It's impossible to have a campfire that's still burning and waking up in the morning and realizing that it's just ashes. You can't say it's still on fire. And so when God is talking about an eternally burning fire, he means that it's going to burn until its job is done, right? It's going to burn until it's made everything into ashes, and then it will cease to burn. Now this is an, another passage of Scripture. We're getting ready to shift gears a little bit. But notice what Matthew chapter 25, verse 46 says. It says, and these will go away into what? everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, we know that the righteous are the only ones who inherit eternal life, but this says that the wicked are going into everlasting punishment. Now, many people understand this to be everlasting punishing, but notice that there's quite a bit of difference. What's the difference between everlasting punishment and everlasting punishing? In other words, if there's a punishment that takes place and you don't change your mind about that punishment, its effects can be eternal. But if there's a punishment that's actually, it's an eternal punishing, that means you're constantly throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity continuing to punish those people, right? You see the difference. Notice the language of the Bible writers is very precise that it says that they're entering into everlasting punishment, not into everlasting punishing. This is very clear for us, to, or very important for us to understand. Now we want to understand the words of Jesus again on this subject. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, notice just Jesus say that the wicked are going to continue to learn, live in the fires of hell. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both what? Soul and body in where? In hell. You know, it doesn't say that God is unable to kill the, or unable to destroy, does it? It says that he's going to come to the point that in hell, both the soul and the body will be destroyed. If it's destroyed, are they there anymore? No, they are no longer in existence. And this is what Jesus tells us in his very own words. Now, we're going to look at one more phrase that we find in this idea of eternal fire and all these other things. And it's what about the biblical expression unquenchable fire, right? We see that idea, the unquenchable fire. And notice what we, where we find this passage of Scripture, what it says. This is Jesus speaking in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Is Jesus speaking literally here? 
No, right? But he's saying it's better to make an extreme action than to sin, right? We're not supposed to be playing with sin at all. But notice he continues on. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be what? Quenched. Unquenchable fire. Jesus says it's better for you to make extreme uh, 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 choices that keep you from sinning rather than going into hell where there's a fire that will not be quenched. Well, does it mean that this fire will not be quenched, therefore it's going to be burning through the ceaseless ages of eternity? Well, why don't we look at another passage of Scripture where God helps us to understand the idea of unquenchable fire or fire that can't be quenched. What we're going to realize here is that God is not talking about a fire that burns forever, and the, and, the, and the idea of that it burns throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, but simply it's one that no human can put out. In other words, there's not going to be a fire truck that's strong enough and powerful enough to put out the fires of hell. There's no one who's going to be able to quench those fires. Simply, an unquenchable fire is one that no human hand can put out. Now you say, well, how can you prove that? Notice what Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27 says. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 27, he says, Then I will kindle a fire in its gates. Now this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is, notice what's happening. Then I will kindle a fire, fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. And it shall not be what? Quenched. Now my question today is, is Jerusalem still burning from this fire that couldn't be quenched back in the time of Jeremiah? No. Then what was God talking about? You see, when God brought the judgment on the people of Israel in the time of Jeremiah, what he's saying is, I'm going to put a fire there that you're not going to be able to put out. In other words, it's going to accomplish its work that I've given it to do, and once it's finished its work, then it's done, right? I mean, when the city is all burned, what else is that fire going to do? Just keep burning for the fun of it? No, it's going to stop because it has no more fuel, and God says at that point, it will have done its work. See, it's simply the idea of unquenchable fire is one that human hands cannot limit, but it's a judgment of God that we see is given by Him that we cannot alter. Now, one of the last expressions, I think this is the very last one, is what about the biblical expression forever and ever? This is what we read in Revelation chapter 20. We want to do justice to all these passages of Scripture and not just throw them out. We want to understand what is the Bible saying? Because it teaches us important information. Well, we're going to see that forever can point to a definite period of time. In other words, that the Bible doesn't use the word forever and ever, just as this idea that something that will continue throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, but it can have a starting point and an ending point. Now, we're going to realize that not only does the Bible do this, but we do this in human language today, right? How many of you have ever been in Meijer or Walmart with a full shopping cart, but there's someone in front of you that has two carts and they're unloading all their stuff and the clerk is just taking forever. Now, if, we were to, if someone was writing your experience down, of the experience that you were having in Meyer, and they wrote, you know, I can't believe it. Well, this line is taking forever. And then that was stuck in a time capsule and 2,000 years later, someone pulls out that expression and it says they were waiting in line forever. They would think, man, shopping was really terrible back 2,000 years ago. It took people a lifetime or the ceaseless ages of eternity to ever get through Meyer shopping. I'm never going to Meyer again, right? And they realize that that's not what you're talking about, right? You have to allow the person who said the expression to define what they mean by it, right? 
You might say, man, it took forever to get to lunch today. Or man, it took forever for me to turn 25 years old. Or man, it, you know, and it, it can all be describing a different period of time, but what is the Bible describing when it uses the term forever and ever? Notice we have very clear biblical examples that we're not guessing at, but the Bible makes it clear. Jonah chapter 2. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah? You know, Jonah and the big fish, Jonah and the whale. And notice when Jonah goes overboard on the ship, right? He throws himself over to save the rest of the company because he's rejecting the will of God and trying to flee from him. Notice what Jonah's words are. As he's going down in the water, this is what he says. And I went down to the moorings of the mountains, and the earth with its bars closed behind me how long? Forever. Now I want to ask you a question. Was Jonah really in the belly of the whale forever? How long was he in there? Three days and three nights, right? That's what the Bible clearly tells us. Now, if you were sitting in a bunch of stomach acid and had seaweed wrapped around your head and it smelled terrible, do you think three days and three nights could feel like forever? You think you're seasick on a boat, try riding in a whale, right? And so Jonah, in describing this experience, he says it's forever. It felt like forever, but you realize that the Bible says it wasn't really forever. You know, let's calm Jonah down a little bit. It was only three days and three nights, right? So we see that the Bible, when it uses the idea of forever and ever, it's not just the idea that it has to go on to the ceaseless ages of eternity, but it's until the event ends, right? He was in there forever until he got out. And that forever just happened to be three days in this scenario. Now, notice this other passage of Scripture that we realize that God helps us to understand this concept as well. Many of you know the story of Hannah and Samuel, right? And Hannah was praying that the Lord would give her a son. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22, notice what Hannah says about Samuel. It says, I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there how long? Forever. Now, you know, she's not just saying he's going to remain before the Lord, like I'm sending him to heaven or something, but he's going to remain before the Lord. Where was he actually going? The temple, right? He was going to serve in the temple before the Lord and be there as a priest. Now, my question is, if we understand that forever in the Bible is a a time period that goes throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, is Samuel still in the earthly Israelite temple today? No, you can ask a Jew and they will not tell you that Samuel is still in their temple today, right? And notice that this is what the Bible intended to say. Notice the very next verse. This is verse 22, but notice what verse 28 says. It says, therefore, I, have, I also have lent him to the Lord, and notice what this says, as long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. Verse 22, she says forever, but then in verse 28, she clarifies and she says, well, it's going to be as long as he lives. Now, does this give us an understanding of how the Bible uses forever and ever? When God is talking about the people who are going to be consumed in the fires of hell, God is not saying, I'm going to burn them for the ceaseless ages of eternity. When one billion years passes, that's only the beginning of how long I'm going to roast them, right? You can hear sermons that talk about that. But we realize that God isn't saying that. He's simply saying, I'm going to allow them to burn forever until it's complete, until they're no more, until their life is no longer, right? Just like in the example of Samuel. But God is going to truly allow them to be brought to an end. Now, this is what the Bible is talking about when we see that it says in Revelation 14.10 that he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. And their smoke of their tormented ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. 
You see, the Bible is not saying that God is a cruel God who's going to roast people forever, but simply He's going to allow them to experience the punishment of hell until the unquenchable fire finishes its work and the people are consumed, right? And they're turned into ashes under your feet. Now, what we've done is we've just looked at all of the passages of Scripture on this topic. Now, there's many more, but we've looked at many that surveyed and helped us to see that in the whole of the Bible, with a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches, that the Bible doesn't teach that there's an eternally burning hell that will go on forever. Now, I want to ask you a question. If the Bible did teach that God was a God who roasted people for all eternity, what would that do to God's character? Have you ever stopped and thought about that for a little bit of time? Who's the most wicked person you can think of? Well, Satan. Okay, okay, that's, that's fair. Now, who's the most wicked earthly person who's ever had uh, you know, life on this planet? Any, any thoughts? Mussolini? Hitler? Stalin? You know, some of these people, right? Yes, I would agree that Satan is the worst, but he would be classified as an angel, and he's kind of the perpetrator of all this evil. But think about Hitler. As wicked as Hitler was, you can read about the Holocaust and all of the things that took place. Did Hitler ever allow the people that he was torturing to die? Yeah, right? The gas chamber, he would finally allow them to die. Sure, he would torture them, he would starve them, he'd do all these things. And he would torture them maybe for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But he finally allowed them to die. And you read the stories of people who have been going through torture. Death is really the greatest blessing that you can give to them, right? They're not saying, oh man, I finally had to die. They're thinking, man, I'd rather die than go through another day of this type of beating. Well, Hitler, if he tortured, say he tortured his person at the longest 20 years. Now God, who we know is the God of love, says, well, 20 years? Man, I'm just getting started with 20 years. I'm not going to stop at 20 years. I'm going to take that person and I'm going to roast them for a billion years. And then as they start to lose life and as they start to die because the flames are so hot, I'm going to revive them supernaturally and continue to give them eternal life so they can suffer and be tortured throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Now, what does that do to your mind and your picture of God? Is God a very loving God at that point? He would have to be less loving than Hitler. Now, some of you might say, well, that's kind of a strong word to say, but it's reality. That if God is one who causes people to suffer without end, he's the most cruel tyrant that there ever is. I can't tell you how many people have become an atheist because of the doctrine of hell. Are you aware of that? There are many people, and there was a story I was just reading about, of a young lady who a man comes in contact with her and says, hey, are you, are you, you, know, are you a Christian? Do you go to church? And she says, well, I'm, I kind of go to church. And he says, well, what do you mean you kind of go to church? You know, how do you kind of do that? And she started to describe, she says, well, I was raised a Christian, and I remember listening to a preacher talk about the ceaseless burnings of hell throughout all eternity. And she says, as I was listening to that preacher, I thought if God does that to people, I would rather turn my back, because I don't want to serve a God who's a torturer and a murderer, but I'd rather just live my life and do my own thing. And she says, the reason why I say I sort of go to church is because I actually get together every week, and we have a church-type service, but I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm a Wiccan. And she said, I've realized that serving Satan is better because Satan seems more just than what God is. Now, she's not the only one who has had this experience. I've run into countless people who have said, you know, the reason why I can't believe that there's a God of love is because he's a God that would torture people throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. But this isn't what the Bible describes. 
you know, as we've taken the time and as we've walked through this, we realize that God is a God who's fair and allows there to be a final punishment of sin. Now notice this last quote. This is from John Scott. And John Scott is the founder of the London Institute of Christianity. And notice what he says about this topic. He says, as a committed evangelical, my question must be and is, not where does my heart, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? This is what we've been looking at, right? I don't want to just do what I think is right, but what does God's word say? Notice how he continues on. And in order to answer this question, we need to survey the biblical material afresh. Now we're going to see he's talking about the question of eternal burning hell. And open our minds and not just our hearts to the possibility that Scripture points to annihilation and that the doctrine of eternal conscious torment has to yield to the superior authority of Scripture. Now what is he saying? He says, hey look, you know, as as a... converted evangelical Christian, I have to come to the point where I'm willing to look at what the Bible says again and not just listen to what I think is right and what everyone else says is right. But as I look at this, it's impossible for me to believe that there's this continual perpetuated eternal torture, but that's simply that the wicked are annihilated. Notice how he continues on. It cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy the human being because they are immortal. For the immortality and therefore indestructibility of the soul is a Greek and not a what? Biblical concept. You see, he says, well, where, where did this idea of the immortal soul come from? We already looked at this partly on Saturday morning, that it comes from the Greek mythology of dualism and all this idea that the soul never really died. And it really has come over into our understanding of hell that you don't actually die, but you continue on forever. But he's saying, hey, when you look at Bible, the Bible and you just survey it, It's impossible to hold that belief as true. The reality is that all of this confusion about death has crept in because the idea of Greek mythology and and just philosophy and, and paganism has crept in and merged itself with Christianity. You see, the idea that there's a a devil who's in charge of heaven really just means that God is allowing Satan to do what he's always wanted to do, right? You realize what that does to our theology? We looked at John chapter 8, verse 44, where it says that that Satan is a murderer, right? And then that he's a liar and the father of it. And you realize if God allowed Satan to be in charge of hell and to be roasting people on the human rotisserie throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, God would really just be giving Satan what he's always wanted. Does that sound like a very fair and just God? No, we realize it's not. And we realize that God is a God who would not allow someone to suffer for eternity for one thing that they had turned away from God. You see, if there's someone who just wasn't living a life in harmony with God, and they at best, you know, how long do we live on this earth? 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe, maybe if you're lucky, 100 years, right? And God says, well, I know you lived a life separate from me for 100 years, but now throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, I'm going to roast you. Does that seem like a fair punishment? Other people believe that hell has been going on forever. And you look at how could that be? Well, if Cain was roasting for 6,000 years before Hitler ever got thrown in, do you think that's very fair? One murder versus millions of Jews or thousands of Jews that were killed. You see, God's way of explaining hell shows us truly about His character. That God is a fair and just God. Now the last question that we're looking at is why is there a hell? Have you ever wondered that? 
You know, this is why some people have gone to the other extreme of saying, you know, God is too loving that there could never be a hell. But is that what the Bible says? We've seen very clearly in Scripture that God tells us that there's going to be a final destruction of sin. But how can God destroy those that He loves? Notice how these verses describe the final destruction. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. He says, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for who? The devil and his angels. You see, when God knew that hell was going to take place and that final destruction was going to happen, his thought is, I don't want you to be there. I know that the devil and his angels have to be there, but it's only prepared for them. I don't want there to have to be human life that's sacrificed, but we realize that when we align ourselves with Satan, that we have no choice, we give God no choice but to destroy us, right? God loves sinners, but He hates the sin. And He's doing everything He can to separate us from it. We realize that when we align our lives with sin and we hold on to the things God hates, that we can't be brought into the realms of glory. And God says, I don't want it to be like this, but this is the reality. That the fires were prepared for the devil and his angels and those who draw close to them. Now, notice that this isn't something that God just joyfully does. Notice the tone in this passage. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says that God is not willing that anyone should what? Perish. But that all should come to repentance. How many people does God want to be in hell? No one. But there's something that has to happen for us to not experience the fires of hell. And that's that we have to turn from our sins, right? We realize that repentance is a gift from God. That only God can give us the sorrow for sin. Only God can make us hate the things we once loved. And God is saying, I want you to turn from your ways. Notice we see that same idea here in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, do what? Turn and live. You see the appeal of God. God is saying, why is there a hell? It's because sin has to be put to an end. If we were to have this idea that we were to burn throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, sin would never, be, would never be put out. But God is saying, I want sin to be done. I realize the cost that it's had on your life. How many of you realize the pain of sin, right? Every day when we wake up. And we realize that sin is such a terrible thing and God says, I want to put an end to it. But I don't want to put an end to you. I want to, by the grace of God, experience the renewing grace in my life so that I can experience everlasting life, right? That's why we're here. And notice how the Bible describes the final act of destruction of the wicked. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21. It says, For the Lord shall rise and bring to pass, and what are those last three words? His strange act. You see, God is a creator. God's the giver and source of all life. God never desired to take life from anyone. God just desires to give life. But you see, the Bible describes it that finally there's going to come to a point where God has to do something strange. In other words, it's out of His normal function. It's not what He desires to do, but finally there comes a point where God says, I have to put an end to sin. It's killing my people. It's breaking their hearts. It's separating me from them. And whatever it takes, I have to put an end to it. And this is why there's a hell. God wants to put an end to sin and He wants to give us hope and the experience of eternal life without suffering any longer. Notice these last passages of Scripture as we wrap up. 2 Peter chapter 
3, verse 13. It says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promises, look for what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isn't this going to be a beautiful time? How many of you are looking forward to that day when there's never going to be sin again? You never have someone being rude to you. You never experience the the desire to sin or to separate from God, but we realize that it's only righteousness dwelling in heaven. Also, in talking about the new Jerusalem, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more what? Death, nor sorrow, nor crime. Neither shall there be any more pain for the what? Former things have passed away. I want to ask you a question. If there are people burning in the ceaseless ages of eternity in the fires of hell, would there still be sorrow? Absolutely. God's saying, hey, this is going to be a time where there's no more sorrow. All of that's going to be done away with. The wicked are going to be destroyed, and the righteous are going to be enjoying the bliss of heaven without the pain of sin anymore. God is promising that there's a time that's coming very soon, right? We're looking at this on Thursday night. How soon is Jesus' second coming? And what does the Bible say about this time? But we realize that this is what God longs for us to experience. Now in closing, I want to share with you a story that comes to my mind as I think about the experience of Jesus. In August of 1957, there were four climbers who decided to climb this mountain in the Swiss Alps. Now, two of them were German climbers, and two of them were Italian climbers. And as they were climbing up this nearly vertical wall of 6,000 feet, they started to run into a problem and ran into a huge storm. And they were trapped on a ledge about 1,000 feet from the summit. Now, the two German climbers, they, didn't, they went off and no one knows what happened to them. But the two Italian climbers were there a thousand feet from the top stuck. Now if that wasn't bad enough, the Swiss Alps uh, rescue team ordered no rescue teams to be sent out. They said, hey look, it's such bad weather today. If we send out any of our guys, their fate is going to be the exact same as those ones up there. It's just not fair for us to send anyone to experience this death-desiring situation. But but as they heard that, there, were a, uh, there was a group of rescuers around there, and they said, you know what, we're not going to go out on behalf of the rescue team, but we're going to do our own private rescue mission. We're going to go out and see if we can save these guys' life. Now, a group of men go up there, and they decide that what they're going to do is lower someone over the abyss that's 6,000 feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to sign up for a job like that. But it's interesting to hear of the man that they chose to do it. Now, Helipart was the man's name who they decided to lower down, and he was connected to a small cable. And notice his words as he's, being descend- as he's descending down this mountain. He says, As I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on top grew farther and further dis- distant until they disappeared from sight. At this moment, I felt an indescribable aloneness. Then for the first time, he talks about then for the first time, as he's looking down, his cable is now slipping from his view. The fog is so thick that he can't even see the very thing that's holding it. And as he's trying to come down, he can't see the men below and he can't see his comrades above, and he starts to wonder if it's worth it. But then he says, there's one thing that kept me going through this time. It was because I was on a mission 
to save the lost men. As the story goes on, we realize that he was successful in his mission of saving these two Italian climbers, but even though during the rescue itself, he thought that it was impossible to do it. You know, as I heard this story, it reminded me of the sacrifice of Jesus, who when Jesus was on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Just like this man being lowered down from the mountain felt separated from those he was closest to, Jesus felt separated from his Father. And as Jesus comes down, it's almost like he can't see through the portals of the tomb, and he wonders if if his sacrifice is really going to be worth it as all of his disciples have run away. But Jesus says that he's come for one reason, it's to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, the reason why Jesus came down to this earth is because he saw two men stuck on the ledge. It's because he saw this universe trapped in despair in the hand of Satan, and he knew if I don't do something, these people are destined to live a life of torture. But God knew that if he would come, he could give us everlasting life. I don't know about you, as I look at the topic of hell and I hear the the voice of God and the, the desire that God has is God doesn't desire any one of us to be there. But God needs us to turn our hearts to him. How many of you this evening want to say, Lord, by your grace, I want to be there with the loving Savior in heaven. I don't want to be outside of that city. I don't want to experience the fires of hell. And I know that through the assurance of the salvation that Jesus offers, that I can walk away here tonight knowing that God is faithful to complete the good work that he started in me, right? That God can give us assurance that we don't have to go through the fires of hell, but that we can reach our hand out to the Savior who's come down to this world. Is that your desire this evening? Lord, help me to experience your grace in a new way. Lord, help me to accept this. Why don't we bow our heads for prayer? Father, we thank you so much for what we've been able to learn about hell this evening. Father, most importantly, we're so thankful that it's your desire that none of us experience the separation and the final separation from you. But Father, you desire all of us to turn to you and to live. Father, you've seen our hands and our hearts, and Father, we pray that you would help us to draw closer to you and to experience the everlasting life that you promised to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.